Last Sunday, we learned in the Sunday morning lesson that God has a standard. And God is our standard. Of course, we went through a process recognizing that God is our standard, that He's revealed His mind through Jesus. Jesus left behind witnesses, the apostles and prophets, who were empowered by the Spirit. These witnesses wrote down the revelation which we can read and understand. And so because of that, we recognize, of course, that God has left the Bible for us as His standard for how we live, how we conduct business and worship and work within the church, and all that we're supposed to do. Remember what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, the Scripture says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has left the Bible for us. This is His standard for our lives. This is His standard for His church. And we're supposed to follow it. But having said that, we recognize that most Christian churches claim that they indeed use the Bible as their standard. How is it that so many groups of people can claim to use the Bible as their standard and yet we all look so different? The issue there is not the claim to the standard. There are lots of folks that use the proper standard. But then there's another problem. Once we have decided what the standard is, we may use the proper standard. The question is, are we using the standard properly? And there are folks today who would tell us that as long as you're looking to the Bible, as long as you claim that Jesus is your Lord, it doesn't matter what else you do. But I remember what God said. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul wrote to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God has granted His word of truth to us. That is His standard for our lives and for His church. But he also points out to us that there is a proper way to use it. And it is our responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth. And so now that we have learned to use the proper standard, we need to start the journey of learning to use the standard properly. Now, there's absolutely no way to do justice to this topic in one sermon. However, if you're like me, I can't stand theories that go much longer than two sermons in a row. We get those ten-part series and we're getting the same thing every Sunday morning or Sunday night. I just start getting bored to tears. I don't know about you. So I'm not going to do that to you. But over the next several months, at various times, we're going to have lessons that deal with this very topic. And that is using the standard properly. This morning, we're just going to address one aspect of this. We're going to look at the issue of the two testaments that God has given us. The beginning Bible student, as he opens up his Bible, will recognize very, from the very beginning that the Bible is not just a book, but it is a book of books. And if you were to open up to one of the very first pages of your Bible, I imagine you have uh, a table of contents that says exactly what's in this book of books. I've got one right in the very front of my Bible. There's a preface and then it shows what it has. And as you'll notice this, you'll recognize that while there are many books, 66 to be in fact, that it's divided in two major sections. 
And let's just, for the sake of those who are beginning Bible students, let's just overview that very quickly. We'll notice that one of those sections is called the Old Testament. And as you look at that, you can count them up, you'll find that there are 39 books in your Old Testament. Now, there's an easy way to remember that. I want you to notice that the word old has three letters. The word testament has nine letters. Put that together, what have you got? Thirty-nine. You remember that very easily. Now, Bible students typically divide these 39 books into other sections. We have the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's called the Law. And then you'll find books of history from Joshua to Esther. There are 12 of those books. Then we have what we call wisdom literature, which is Job through Song of Solomon. There's five of those books. Then you have the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel, which is also five books. And finally, the last section, Minor Prophets, Hosea through Malachi, which is made up of 12 books. This makes up our Old Testament, the way it's organized today in our Bibles. You see that right there, Table of Contents. Now, I know the Table of Contents is not inspired, but that's just the way it is in our Bibles. Now, we have the New Testament. The New Testament has 27 books in it. 39 plus 27 equals 66. There's an easy way to remember this. Notice that new has three letters in it. Testament has nine letters in it. What's three times nine? 27. Very easy. 27 books in the New Testament. Bible students typically break down the New Testament into four different parts. They begin with the Gospels. The Gospels are the book of Matthew through John. Four books. Let me just say to you very quickly, if somebody asks you what the Gospels are, please do not say they tell us the biography of Jesus, because that is just simply not the case. Biographies begin with somebody's birth, and they tell us about all of their lives. There's probably about three weeks of Jesus' life found in the Gospels at most, if we take all the things that are mentioned there. The Gospels are not the biography of Jesus. The Gospels are simply to tell us who Jesus was and who he is, the divine Son of God, and they prove that. They didn't have to tell us all about his life, but they told us who he was. Then we have one book that makes up the New Testament section of history. It's the book of Acts. The Old Testament books of history dealt with the Jewish nation and the people of God chosen there. The book of Acts tells us about the history of Christ's church. Then we have the longest section, 21 books from Romans through the book of Jude, which are the epistles or letters to brethren and to churches. And finally, we end with one book of prophecy, which is an apocalypse. And I use the term apocalyptic to describe the genre because that is exactly the genre of the book of Revelation. But we might also call it the New Testament book of prophecy. And that's one book found at the very end. Now, this is the overview that we see of the Bible. You can look at your table of contents. You see these two main sections. But what are we supposed to do with them? automatically some questions come to our mind when we see one is an Old Testament and one is a New Testament. What does that mean? Do we use these two sections of our Bibles the same way? Well, to answer this, let's begin by noticing some contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The very first thing that we need to recognize is that the Old Testament was written to the nation of Israel. Look in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, this comes from the section called the Law, the first five books of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 1. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 1, the Scripture there says in Deuteronomy 4, 1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you. Drop down to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 7. 
For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as you, excuse me, as are in all this law which I set before you this day? This law, this Old Testament, was sent to the nation of Israel. Notice that this is a physical nation. People entered this nation because they were born into this nation. Their parents were Jews. They were born Jews. They were brought up as Jews. And they were Jews. They were part of the nation of Israel. They were going in to possess a physical land and have a physical kingdom. That is who the Old Testament was written to. But I want you to notice that the New Testament was written to an overlapping group, yes, and yet a distinct group. Look in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 22. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 22, the Hebrew writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We recognize that the New Testament was written to the church of Christ, Christ's body, the general assembly that belongs to Jesus. Notice what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 15, he says, But if I am delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The New Testament was not written to the same group as the Old Testament. The Old Testament written to the nation of Israel. The New Testament written to the church to teach us how to conduct ourselves in Christ's church. And I want you to notice that you became a Jew by birth, that you become a Christian, you become a part of this new people, this spiritual Israel, the spiritual nation, by rebirth, by a spiritual birth. John chapter 3, verse 3. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night, and they were talking, and Jesus pointed out to him in John 3 and verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was a Jew. He recognized, I became a part of the kingdom I'm in because I was born into it. So he asked him, well, am I supposed to enter in my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We're now talking about a spiritual people, no doubt. Some of the physical kingdom of Israel became a part of the spiritual kingdom, the church. And yet they are two distinct groups. These sections were written to two different groups. And so that automatically demonstrates that there must be some difference regarding how we are going to use them. Thirdly, I want you to notice that as we consider these two different sections in our Bibles, that they both tell of different things that are going to happen with the Messiah. If we look at the Old Testament, we recognize that the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah will be coming to be a sacrifice and to establish His kingdom. We can look to the book of Isaiah. Just one example. I'm not going to look at numerous examples, but just one example. Isaiah chapter 53. We could begin in chapter 52 and verse 13 and read all the way through 53, but just notice Isaiah 53 and verse 4. In Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 4, 
The prophet told us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Messiah is coming to be bruised and stricken for our sins, is what the Old Testament tells us is going to happen. Additionally, we can look at Isaiah 2 and notice that it talks not just about his sacrifice, but about a kingdom that he's going to establish beginning in Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 2, the scripture there says, Isaiah 2 and verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And on it goes, telling us about this house of God, this kingdom of God, that Jesus, excuse me, that the Messiah is going to come and establish. And that's where the Old Testament is taking them. But when we get to the New Testament, we find out that the Messiah is going to come and do something different at the end of the New Testament. At the end of the New Testament, we find out the Messiah is coming to judge the wicked and save his own. Look at the book of 1 Thessalonians. The book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read from chapter 4 in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to begin in verse 13. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, Paul wrote, But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ the word Christ there is the Greek word that is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Look also at Second Thessalonians beginning in chapter 1 and verse 6. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, it says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. We recognize, as we examine the two covenants, that the first covenant said that at the end of this covenant, the Messiah is coming. He's going to be sacrificed for our sins. He's going to establish a kingdom. But the new covenant says at the end of this covenant, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to judge those who are wicked. He's going to save those who are righteous. That tells us, wait a minute, there must be something different here. These are heading to two different goals. Keep that in mind, because that's going to become important. But we recognize that along with this, at the end of the covenant, the Old Testament told us that a New Testament was coming at the end of it. Look at Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, 
In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, the Old Testament says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And on he goes to talk about this new covenant. So the Old Testament told us a new testament is coming at the close of this one. And the New Testament tells us that at the end of it, destruction is coming. Look at Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter writes in verses 10 and 11, But the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent destruction is coming. And just to remind you what we've already noticed in the previous point, but at the time of this destruction, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 through 30, John chapter 5, beginning at verse 28, Jesus telling what was coming in John 5, 28 said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus said at the end of this new covenant is coming judgment. And some will be resurrected to eternal life, and some will be resurrected to eternal condemnation. And so we recognize that the two covenants are going to end in two different ways. And because of all this, we recognize that these are not just coincident books that just go together and should be used the same way. They were given to two different people. They have two different goals and two different purposes and they're going to two different ends. And finally, we need to recognize that if we follow the different books, we will become different things. If we submit to the law of Moses, we'll become Jews. Notice what Paul, who had been a Jew, says about the law in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 17, I think we would expect a Jew who had become a Christian to understand how to use both the Old and the New Testament. And notice what he says the Old Testament does. In Romans 2, 17, he said, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. If I am going to rest on the law and I am going to follow that old law of Moses, guess what it's going to make me? It's going to make me a Jew. But if I follow the New Testament, what is that going to make me? It's going to make me a Christian. Notice what Galatians chapter 3. This is again Paul. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, the Scripture there says, For you all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. We become Abraham's seed according to promise. The spiritual Israel, and yet we belong to Christ when we follow this new covenant and in faith follow it. 
And so we find the distinction between the two covenants. How do they go together? If there is a distinction, if there is a difference, how do these two books go together? How do they relate to one another? What we recognize as we examine the Scripture is that God gave us the new covenant and it has superseded the old covenant. Just consider some things. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. The book of Galatians chapter 3 now recognize that we've already learned that the Old Testament was given to a particular people. Interestingly enough, again, we learn from Paul, remember, who had been a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He understood the law. He recognized, now that he was a Christian, how it worked. And notice what he says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. We, we learn that it was given not only to a particular people, but it was given for a particular time. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, the Scripture says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Notice, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, who is that seed? Look at verse 16 of Galatians 3. Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The law was to be in effect till Christ could come, till the seed come. Till Christ came. The seed came. The law was given for a particular time till the seed should come. The seed has come, and that time is now over. But I want you to also notice that the law was given for a particular purpose. Stay in Galatians chapter 3. This time look at verse 21. In Galatians 3 and 21, the Scripture there says, Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law was given for a particular purpose, to bring us to Christ, to have faith in Christ. And notice what it says very specifically. Once the purpose has been fulfilled, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. The purpose of the law was to bring us to Christ. And now Christ has come. And we're supposed to submit to Christ and no longer under that schoolmaster. The new covenant of Christ has superseded the old covenant. And let me point out to you just one thing about this. Please notice that never once does the Scripture indicate that the law was ever given to save anyone. Look in Galatians 3, verse 10. In Galatians 3, and verse 10, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Some folks believe that there's two ways to be saved. Either obey the law perfectly or submit to the new covenant. The point of the old law was to demonstrate that you can't be justified by the law. 
it was never given to justify anyone. It was given to demonstrate that we cannot be justified by the law, but must be justified by faith in Christ and through the grace of God. The Old Testament was given to a particular people for a particular time, for a particular purpose. That people no longer exist. Not the way they did in the Bible. That time has passed. And the purpose has been fulfilled. What's that tell us? The law is no longer in effect. It has been superseded by the new law. But don't be surprised by this, as we've already declared the Old Testament promise to be superseded by a New Testament. We read that in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And notice what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 8, as it talks about this new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6. In Hebrews 8 and verse 6, the Hebrew writer says, But now He, that is Jesus the Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a... You ready for this? Better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them... Now notice, the fault was not with the covenant itself. The fault was with them, that is, the people. It's because of our fault that that first covenant, because of man's fault that first covenant couldn't save anyone, because we sinned. And the law can't justify us from sin. So because he found fault with them, he says, Behold, this is verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, and I'll remember, the, I'll remember no more. In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. The first covenant, this is God writing this, not me saying it. God said the first covenant has become obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, and in fact did vanish away in A.D. 70. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, the temple was destroyed, the priesthood dismantled. And since that time, not a single sacrifice under Old Covenant law has been given. The priesthood cannot be established again because nobody knows who is of the tribe of Levi. That old vanished away. At this time, they were still offering the sacrifices. The temple was there, and the Hebrew writer says, it's coming, it's going to vanish because it's obsolete. And that's exactly what happened. Now, at this point, I recognize that some get hung up on the fact that the Scripture says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means His law never changes. Two things about that. Number one, the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever does not mean that God's law never changes. What it does mean is that God Himself 
never changes. But secondly, God himself, who never changes, told us that the law changed. Look in Hebrews 7, 12. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 12, in this context, God had been pointing out to the Hebrew writer that the priesthood had changed no longer under the Aaronic priesthood, but under the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he points out that Jesus, the Christ, was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood has changed. And in Hebrews 7, 12, he says, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. God said it. Not me. The law changed. When did it happen? When the priesthood changed. Look in Colossians. <coughs> Excuse me. Look in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 13. In Colossians, chapter 2, and verse 13, the Scripture there says, You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Verse 16 of Colossians 2, So, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He says Jesus Christ nailed that handwriting of requirements that was contrary to us to the cross. That's the law. The handwriting of requirements is contrary to us. Why? We wouldn't live by it. Finding fault with us, he brought in a new one, and he made the old obsolete, nailed it to the cross. And because of that, Paul goes on to say the logical conclusion is don't let anyone judge you about Sabbath and about the food or the drink or about the festivals. Why? Because that's part of the old law, and we're not under that old law anymore. We have been superseded that old law. The New Testament has superseded the Old Testament. Don't go back to the old. Don't use it as your pattern. What does that mean? That means the Old Testament is not our law. Our law is the law of Christ revealed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. What that means is, just because the Old Testament allows something, doesn't mean that it's allowed under our new covenant that we have with Christ. Consider, for example, polygamy. Look in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 10. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 10, notice that polygamy was allowed and regulated. It says, if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. Polygamy was allowed. But notice the new covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Certainly polygamy was allowed under the old covenant. Well, what about the new covenant? Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own, how many? Wife. One. And let each woman have her own husband. One. That's all that's authorized. That's all that's allowed. Now, someone will say, well, how did they make the transition? Surely when the New Covenant got started, they were polygamous. What did they do? I don't know. 
I imagine if God had thought that we'd have to deal with that, He would have told us. I'm certain that He told them how to deal with it, but we obviously didn't need to know. I don't know how they dealt with it. I know this. Nobody today can claim, hey, I was under the authority of the old law and allowed to be a polygamist. What am I supposed to do now? Because none of us have ever been under that authority. Just because something was allowed under the old law doesn't mean it's allowed under the new law. Secondly, just because something was condemned under the old law does not mean it's condemned under the new law. Look in Leviticus chapter 11. Talk about the eating of certain meats in Leviticus chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel, Leviticus 11:2, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. Excuse me, the camel, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is the unclean to you. We can go on through this list. Notice in verse 10, But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. Verse 13, These you shall regard as an abomination. Among the birds, they shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, and on it goes. These are abominations under the old law. But what about the new law? Look in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's Peter who had been raised a Jew. He'd been raised. All these things are abominations. And he fell into a trance as a vision. In Acts chapter 10, verse 11, saw heavens open and an object like a great sheet down at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. God said all these things were cleansed under the new covenant. You see, just because something is allowed under the Old Covenant doesn't mean it's allowed under the New Covenant. Just because something was condemned under the Old Covenant doesn't mean it's condemned under the New Covenant. How are we going to know what's allowed and condemned under the New Covenant? Go to the New Covenant and find that. The New Covenant is our law. And that's what we use as our standard. Why? Because I want to be a New Testament Christian. I don't want to be an Old Testament Jew. So, how do we use the Old Law? Let's be very quick. Romans 15 and verse 4 says that the things which were written before were written for our learning. If you're here in Bible class, you notice we went back to some Old Testament passages. During this sermon, we've even gone back and looked at Old Testament passages. How can a preacher who claims they're not under the old law go back to the old law? Well, because the Scripture says, the new law says there'll be areas from which we can learn from the old covenant. That's why we read the old covenant and learn from it. How? Well, I suggest to you that there are four ways, four major ways, in which we can learn from the Old Testament. First of all, when the Old Testament coincides with the New Testament. When the New Testament, though it is a better covenant and has superseded the Old Covenant, administers once again a same law as was in the Old Covenant, I can go back to the Old Covenant and learn what that law means. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 quotes from the Ten Commandments saying that we ought to honor our father and mother. If Paul says under the New Covenant we ought to honor our father and mother, quoting from the Old Covenant, what he's saying is, is that what the Old Covenant meant by honoring father and mother still applies under the New Covenant. I can go back to that old law 
and learn what that means then, can't I? Number two, we can use it the same way Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, notice, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food. He goes on and talks about the Israelites going through the wilderness. And he says, these guys are an example for us. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What were the examples? Was the example that you and I are supposed to wander through the wilderness and cross the Red Sea? No. The example is, is that when God is in a covenant relationship with somebody, He expects us to obey Him. And when we don't, we'll be punished. Now, I can learn from that example, can't I? The details of the covenant are not the same. The specifics of the law we follow are not the same. But I can learn this. So when people are in a covenant relationship with God, He expects them to obey Him. I can learn that. Thirdly, we can use the Old Testament the same way it was used in Acts chapter 2. When Peter, on the day of Pentecost, appealed to the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah in Acts 2, verse 27, He'll not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Paul, Peter used the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus must be the Messiah because he was resurrected. We can learn about our Messiah. In fact, the only way we know that Jesus is the Messiah who saves us is because we study the Old Testament and learn what was prophesied and know that Jesus fulfills it. Again, we can use it regarding the prophecies of the kingdom. Acts chapter 15, in verse, beginning at verse 15. Acts 15 and 15, James stood up there at the council as they were trying to figure out whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews by being circumcised in order to be Christians. And in Acts 15 and verse 15, James said, with this, the words of the prophet agree, as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. He went back to Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and learned that Gentiles could be a part of the kingdom of God. He used the Old Testament to determine that because the Old Testament made prophecies of the kingdom. And we can learn from those prophecies. And finally, I think we can recognize that where in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament simply describes how to live wisely in this world, this world hasn't changed. That means wise living in this world hasn't changed. I can go back to those Old Testament wisdom writings and even throughout the Old Testament as it provides this wisdom for living in this world. Read Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes, and see how it mirrors where we are. And so when I turn to Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 1, and it says to me, don't become surety for a stranger. Don't co-sign on a stranger's loan. Well, I can bank on that, that it was unwise then, it's unwise today. I can learn from that, and I can live according to that. So we learn from the old law. We can even learn things about how to live under the new covenant from the old law, but the old covenant is not our status. Recognize this. Certainly, lots of people claim to use the proper standard. But when you look at all the differences that are out there, the reason is, is because despite using the proper standard, lots of people use the standard improperly. 
And one of the problems is not knowing how to rightly divide between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And if we are going to rightly divide the Word of Truth, we've got to know the difference. And we've got to use the Old appropriately and the New appropriately. We need to remember the warning that Paul issued there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Going back to the law curses us, because we won't live by it fully. We can't go pick and choose. If we're going to go back to the old law, we've got to take it all. But Paul said that would curse us. But notice also his solution in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here's the warning. Don't go back to the old law. It's a curse. But here's the solution. Christ has redeemed us from that curse. We don't have to be under the old law. Why on earth would we want to go back and be cursed when we can stay in the new covenant and have life and redemption? Would you pull out your songbook, please?